Support for this podcast comes from San Francisco International Airport. At SFO, you can discover award-winning flavors and unique shops all before takeoff. Learn more about what's at SFO at flysfo.com. Hey there, this is Brittany Luce from NPR's It's Been a Minute. KQED's podcasts like The Bay, Bay Curious, Mind Shift, Right Nowish, and more all tell the stories of the Bay and beyond with reliable, human-centered journalism. They aim to inspire, make you think, entertain, and expand your understanding of the place you call home. Here's how you can support podcasting at KQED. Showing your support is easy, and you can join Brittany in supporting KQED Podcast too at donate.kqed.org slash podcast. That's donate.kqed.org slash podcast. From KQED. From KQBD in San Francisco, this is Forum. I'm Mina Kim. With recent stories of bear break-ins in Lake Tahoe and a black bear lounging in a jacuzzi in Burbank, you'd be tempted to think bear populations generally are doing well. But six of the eight remaining species are facing an imperiled future, according to environmental journalist Gloria Dickey, who set out to better understand humans' complex relationship with bears. We've sought to conquer the great predators, submitted to their prowess, turned bears into spectacle commodity and champion, Dickie writes. And now she's hoping our complicated love for and fear of bears will help us figure out a better way to coexist with them as climate change threatens their future. Join us. Welcome to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Have you ever had a run-in with a bear or seen one with your own eyes? California's black bear population has not only gotten bigger, the bears are staying awake longer and hanging out in places that have a lot more people. So, for really real, this actual bear right there that I almost walked into has gone into Safeway and has decided decided that he's going to go shopping. But for all their ability to charge at mall, even kill us, Gloria Dickey says she's often struck by the leniency and grace we humans extend to bears. We take a closer look at our complicated relationship with bears this hour, a relationship that is being tested in California as the number of bear encounters grows. Gloria Dickey's new book is Eight Bears, and she joins me now. Welcome to Forum, Gloria. Hi, Mina. Thank you for having me. Really glad to have you. And I think you're right. We do seem to be willing to extend grace to bears in ways that we may not be so willing to do with other potentially vicious predators. (laughs) Um, You suggest in your book that maybe it has to do with bears being first toys in our cribs, teddy bears, or, or the heroes of our favorite bedtime stories. Tell us what you learned about that. Yeah, I think, you know, I kind of considered the role of the teddy bear as the first, I guess, animal form that many of us encounter in life. Uh, But I also thought a lot about the stories that we tell about animals during childhood. And especially when you think about bears compared to wolves, you have the big bad wolf, but you don't really have the the villainous bear, the big bad bear, especially in stories like Goldilocks, where it's actually the human that kind of intrudes upon the bear's home and lays waste to what's found there. So it's a, it's a different setup, I think, than when we're thinking about some of these other predators on our landscape. Right. It was the human who was intruding on the bear, which 
kind of a useful way to think about um, why we are having so many more bear encounters. You mentioned Winnie the Pooh and Paddington and so on, of course, who are have lived large in many of our, our lives. I guess the other thing that I was struck by that I learned from your book is that people thought we had a common ancestor with bears before they learned that it was really with apes. <laughs> People thought that bears were one of our closest relatives, of course, you know, before the advent of DNA testing that would disprove that idea. Uh, and, you know, that kind of played into factors like bears are known as occasional bipeds, which means they can walk on two feet. As we saw uh, a few weeks ago with the sun bear in the Chinese zoo, people thought it was a person wearing a bear costume because it was walking upright and it kind of had these loose skin folds. So I think that that kind of idea of bears and humans being quite similar, you know, not just in form, but also in perhaps their curiosity and their intelligence that has persisted for quite a long time. And there was that uh, comparison you draw to a bear's foot being, as you say, the um, the size of a male size 11 shoe. <laughs> it is pretty amazing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was I was hiking once and I saw this like wet footprint on the rock. And at first I was thinking it was a, a human footprint, but I was kind of quite far back in the backcountry and hadn't seen anyone. Uh, and then I realized it was a fresh, wet, uh, barefoot. So can you also just talk a little bit about how teddy bears came to be so popular in the U.S.? Um, to the point where even though they are these massive creatures that can walk and are the size or much bigger than humans, we started carrying them around as cuddly toys. <laughs> I think, I mean, that was kind of the the turning point for bear-human relations in Western culture, I suppose. Uh, so essentially, Theodore Roosevelt, President Teddy Roosevelt, had gone on a bear hunting trip, and some of his companions had run on ahead of him, and they'd found this black bear. The bear allegedly swiped at the dog or the hound they had with them. And so they said, let's tie it to the tree, and we'll wait for Teddy to catch up, and then he can... He can shoot it. And instead, he, when he finally caught up to his friends, he was like, well, that's not, you know, it's not good sportsmanship. And so he said to let the free, let the bear go free. And this made it into the paper, some of the local papers. A local cartoonist drew this encounter. It was called, I think, Drawing the Line in Mississippi or Missouri, Mississippi, I think. And the way that he drew the bear was like these really cute, really round cartoon kind of ears on the bear. And apparently a local toy maker saw that drawing and he was inspired. And so he created the first uh, teddy bear named for, of course, the president. <laughs> And yeah, you're right. It is drawing the line in Mississippi. Uh, we're exploring our complex relationship with bears with Gloria Dickey. And uh, I want to invite you, our listeners, to join the conversation. Do you feel an affection for or affinity with bears? What do you think accounts for it? You can email forum at kqed.org, post on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord at KQED Forum, or call us at 866-733-6786. So your book is called Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future, because there are only eight living species of bear, uh, including probably the best known polar, panda, black and brown. The ones doing the very best are black and brown. Where are we at in terms of their populations? Yeah, so in many ways, the brown bear and 
and the American black bear are these conservation success stories, even though it might not always feel that way. And certainly when I kind of started out on this reporting odyssey, I wasn't quite aware of that. Um, So there are nearly a million American black bears across Canada and the U.S. And brown bears, of which grizzly bears are a subspecies, are also doing pretty well in a global context. There's around 200,000, but that's, of course, you know, spread out from Alaska across, you know, Eurasia as well. So it's a pretty big wellspring of brown bear. Of course, in the lower 48 states, which most people are familiar with, the grizzly bear has been listed under the ESA, the Endangered Species Act, since 1975. And there's around 2,000 or perhaps slightly fewer grizzly bears left in a few populations kind of scattered between Montana, Wyoming, and uh, Idaho these days. Well, we did ask our listeners ahead of the show, and listeners, you can also share it now as well about bear encounters. And this listener writes, when I was a kid, my mom, sister, and I vacationed at Lake Tahoe in a family friend's cabin with huge glass windows that made the house seem like a glass box. One night we were in the living room when we noticed a bear walking around right next to our glass box of a cabin. My mom yelled at me to go hide, then proceeded to scream in an attempt to scare the bear away. A mother's instinct is never wrong. Another listener, Yvette in Tahoe writes, when I was little, we never saw bears by our cabin in Tahoe because we're right next to the freeway. But they replaced the trash cans with bear boxes 30 years ago. And as they started putting in bear boxes, bears couldn't get into the trash. So they started breaking into houses. Now we've had multiple bear break-ins. Once a bear slid open an unlocked window in our kitchen, crawled through, and started ripping the doors off the cabinets, you should have seen the cans it left. Cans it opened with its claws. Can you believe how strong and desperate they are? But it's not just the risk of bears making a mess in the kitchen. The bear could have accidentally turned on the stove, caught on fire, or burned the whole place down. Are any of these bear behaviors surprising to you, Gloria? Or is this something that you have definitely heard a lot about and are thinking we should be prepared for? It's definitely not surprising that that takes place in Lake Tahoe. It tends to be kind of the ground zero of all of these crazy bear break-in stories and bears and trash and bears and bakeries. And I I love the clip that you played from Safeway at the start of the show. Um, But yeah, I mean, bears are incredibly determined. They're intelligent. You know, they, they are inventive in terms of how to access food. And that's why we often have to keep reinventing what we call, you know, bear-proof or bear-resistant infrastructure because they kind of figure it out. And I think the the latter experience that you just read to me is very similar to kind of what we saw happen in Yosemite decades ago when, you know, they would close the landfills that were what the dumps that were once in the park and then the bears moved into campgrounds and then they tried to tamp down things in the campgrounds and then bears went into people's cars, right? They just keep, if you have these food-conditioned animals on the landscape, they just kind of keep progressing in their inventiveness, if you will. Yeah, you write sharp increase Sharp increases in black bear numbers combined with rampant human encroachment have given rise to a new breed of bear in America, the urban bear. Is that essentially what you're describing here? Would they be considered sort of the urban bear? I think it's close. I mean, I think that communities like Lake Tahoe, it's a little bit more of like that wildland interface. Like you are in a mountain town, whereas we are seeing bears, you know, get into Yonkers and get into Boston and places like that, which perhaps a little bit more urban than some of these mountainside towns. Um, But certainly it, it, it kind of gets at the same issue, which is that, yes, people are bringing food into these places. They're expanding into areas that were once heavily forested. And, you know, what, what do the bears do? They're going to go into the food that you just brought in. 
And that's essentially how you got interested in bears, right? You were studying bear-human encounters in Boulder? Yeah, so I moved down to Boulder, Colorado in 2013 to do my master's in environmental journalism. It's very, very apt. And I had come from a place that didn't have many black bears up in Canada. And I was kind of excited by the fact that there were bears in town. And they'd come in and they'd come, kind of come down from the front range of the Rockies and they would eat and they would fall asleep in trees. Um, but of course, that same year that I moved there, there were several bears that were euthanized by wildlife managers out of concern that they kept coming back into town to eat garbage. They were in the alleyways. You know, they, they didn't actually attack anyone, but there was the concern was there. And so a local citizens group was trying to push to get those same bear-resistant, bear-box bins type thing that you see in Lake Tahoe and some other kind of mountain resort towns into Boulder. And at the time, that would have been, and it was, the largest kind of uh, city to introduce such an ordinance to deal with the black bear population. And it was really because they were upset that the other option was just to kill them when they felt like humans were kind of responsible for luring them in. <laughs> Yeah, because I mean, part of Boulder used to be apple orchards. <laughs> so you had, you know, I used to volunteer with this group that would go out in the fall and we would kind of stri strip the trees bare to try and prevent the bears from coming in and eating apples and, and, you know, I guess quotation marks getting into trouble. But that typically didn't happen. It was just that underlying fear that something could happen with, you know, a, a 400 pound black bear in town. Yeah, and therein lies also just an example of our complicated relationship. Um, we really do want to figure out ways to coexist with bears. And that is the topic of today's show. Listeners, if you want to share how you are coexisting with bears, any bear encounters you have, if you feel a special connection to them or want people to remember uh, certain facts about bears like Robert, who writes, we are more vicious than bears. Please discuss the actual statistics of humans killed by bears. It is extremely rare. Share those thoughts by emailing forum at kqed.org or posting on our social channels or calling 866-733-6786. More after the break. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall -wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. You're listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Tomorrow, we'll look at the impacts of Tropical Storm Hillary, how you were affected, and questions that you have about 
the first tropical storm to enter California in decades. You can leave a voicemail at 415-553-3300. Today we're talking with environmental journalist Gloria Dickey, author of Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. And just before the break, we were talking about California's black bears and how there were a lot more of them. Dickie has called Tahoe ground zero for encounters with black bears. And just to give you an example of just what they are doing, here's a Lieutenant Jeff Robinson of South Lake Tahoe Police. They're supposed to be hibernating, but they've been so used to people and being fed year round, they don't, they don't really do the bear stuff. They've figured out how to operate car doors to get into after food that's in cars. A couple of them figured out how to work French doors to get into the house. One mama bear even was seen teaching her cubs how to get into that French door. And Jeff Robertson was interviewed by NBC News. We have with us now Serena Simons, human bear management specialist for California State Parks, also host of the podcast Earth to Humans. Serena, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. So talk to us a little bit about specifically what is happening in the Tahoe region. How would you describe the current state of human bear relations in Tahoe today? Oh man, I mean I think that's a that's a pretty <laughs> pretty big question. Um you know, I guess to start Tahoe is such a destination for people um that we just we, we see more and more tourists every year and so with that kind of influx in tourism uh, which is year round by the way we see a peak in summer but we also you know see the peak in winter for ski season so it really is kind of a year round town um and with that we have year round bears and so uh, we have definitely just a lot of people that are excited to see bears um and a lot of bears that are excited to see human food so that creates kind of a um an interesting combination of potential conflict um in here in Tahoe so lots of bears here lots of people and lots of food availability yeah you describe it as a quandary because you're educating residents about how to try to secure their food and so on um, and to try not to have bears be tempted to come into their homes and other areas. But Tahoe is also a tourist town. So I imagine that adds a whole nother level of complication. Absolutely. I mean, we have a really amazing Tahoe interagency bear team um, known as TIBT, um, which you can find more information about at tahoebears.org. Um, but our interagency team is composed of uh, California Department of Fish and Wildlife, um, myself and my team over at California State Parks, um, Nevada Department of Wildlife, TRPA, the Tahoe Regional Planning Agency, and U.S. Forest Service. So we have all of these agencies that have come together to try to solve these problems. Um, and in Tahoe, it's just such a unique place because there's, you know, two state lines. So we have Nevada and California. We have all of these little cities and towns. So there's no sort of like lake-wide ordinance. There's a lot of unincorporated areas. So there's no real um, way to kind of uh, engage with people on like a broad, in a broad way and impose, um, you know, like, any kind of rules or regulations as far as homeowners and bear boxes and all of that. So it's just, it's a really complicated puzzle that we're all trying to um, solve together. And yeah, I mean, it's, it's just, it's hard because we get a lot of folks um, that, 
you know, are excited to see bears, like I said, but they, they're not used to being in bear country. Um, so if there's folks coming up from out of town, either to their Airbnb or to camp, um, you know, seeing bears and being around bears is just such a unique experience for them. Um, something they may, may have never done before. So they just really, um, don't know, you know, like the typical rules on how to behave in bear country, um, you know, picking up your food and trash and not leaving it out the night before and, um, you know, turning the electric uh, preventative wiring and um, mats on at the Airbnb or, you know, not trying to take selfies with bears and not, um, you know, encouraging them to come towards you, you know, so there's just a lot of, um, a lot of, a lot of uh, responsibility when it comes to living in bear country that, you know, our team is trying to um, get out there that message of, you know, how, how to coexist with bears and live responsibly here. Yeah. Before the break, we had the listener who talked about discussing the actual statistics of humans killed by bears in that it's extremely rare. That's true, mm -hmm. right, Serena? Yes. Yes. It's very rare. Um, you know, but as we you know, move forward with more people moving into this um, wildland urban interface, like Tahoe is a great example, but also um, Los Angeles, we're encroaching into um, more wild areas there. And so we're just, we're going to see an uptick in the potential for human bear conflict. And, you know, that, that kind of gives me pause and makes me worry because, um, you know, bears are just acting purely on instinct um, and learned behavior uh, from their mothers. And so um, they're really just after food and they will do pretty much anything in order to get it. Um, and so we just really want to like, like slam in that message that um, bears belong here, bears are going to be here. And so how can we as people alter our behavior and be better stewards of our environment so that our bears can stay wild and healthy? There was a, a moment in that clip that we played from South Lake Tahoe Police Lieutenant Jeff Roberson, where he said, they're supposed to be hibernating. Can you talk about what he meant by that, that the bears some are not hibernating at all anymore. Yeah. And I think, I guess I just want to start with clarifying the term hibernation. And so in in sort of a wildland bear, a bear that hasn't really been around people or humans or our stuff, um, you know, bears go into a kind of hibernation, but it's more of like a torpor state, which is just sort of a, a slowing of their their internal systems, their heart rates decrease, they um, lose a large percentage of their body weight um, during hi hibernation slash torpor. Um, but it's really just sort of a way for them to conserve energy to get through a winter of scarcity. And so, you know, that's sort of the biological need for hibernation is when there isn't any green stuff or dead stuff or, you know, berries out there in the wild for them to eat. They have to kind of um, get through that period of scarcity. But here in Tahoe, um, they're learning that there's not necessarily that scarcity. When there's people up here year-round, there's going to be our food and garbage here year-round too. And so, you know, bears have 
been known to come out of quote unquote hibernation on trash day specifically um, because they know that they can get an easy meal and easy calories that way. Um, And some of them are just staying awake, you know, coming out of their little den uh, where they sleep and then coming out during the day to try to, you know, forage quote unquote in uh, humans' homes and in areas where they really don't belong. And so, you know, that that's typically generational knowledge too, is their mothers are showing um, their cubs how to do this. And it's just beneficial to them because why would you need to sleep for several months out of the year when you, you know, can just stay awake and eat really tasty, yummy, calorie dense human food all year round. So this is being passed on from generation to generation. (laughs) And as you say, the longer that they're awake, the more opportunity for encounters with humans, which is a point of concern. I am curious though, um, if there are risks just to bears biology at all, uh, if they don't take time to go into a hibernation state. I mean, definitely. I think the implications of that are still, we're still trying to figure that out. You know, as I mentioned, when bears um, go into the den right before that in the fall, they go through this period known as hyperphagia, where they're just eating and eating and eating constantly, just trying to rack up as many calories, put on as much body weight as they can in order to survive a winter of scarcity. Um, so you can imagine these bears going into eating overdrive and then not losing that body mass over the course of the winter. So what is that doing to them biologically? Um, it's also, you know, something to note about, um, bears coming into those areas. So mortality increased by our vehicles. So the potential for more vehicle collisions. Um, We're also seeing bears that, um, you know, their sense of competition, males um, don't, well, bears in general, (laughs) black bears don't like to be around each other really, unless it's uh, for reproduction or it's a a sow with her cub. Um, But we're seeing bears tolerate each other um, because they don't, have that sort of drive for competition. If there's a huge pile of garbage and food for them, there's no real need to to stay away from each other. So we've seen males congregate together. Um, that's the potential for spreading diseases. Um, and also cubs, the cubs are doing really well when, when the sow is putting on a lot of weight and eating year round and, you know, her body is basically telling her Self that she can uh, sustain uh, a large amount of cubs for that year. So we'll, we'll see sows with two, three, sometimes four cubs, which is just not typically normal. So Tahoe is just kind of a, a microcosm of not really normal <laughs> behavior. <laughs> um, before I let you go, Serena, I do have one last question. I loved what you shared with our producer, Caroline, about how you love bears. You described them as dorky, goofy, giant raccoons (laughs) with unique personalities. These are the black bears, of course, that we're talking about. But you also said they're really important for our ecosystems. And I am curious if they aren't doing sort of the bear stuff, as uh, the police lieutenant put it, and eating nuts and berries and things in, in the forest, how is it affecting our ecosystems? Or what role do they play in the ecosystem that you're worried about disrupting? I mean, they have a huge role in our ecosystem. Um, Bears are known as a keystone species. So um, they're kind of a pillar that keeps things going and moving and healthy. Um, And so you think about um, bears eating natural food out in the wild. Um, Berries, for example, if bears are eating berries, um, they're also 
you know, pooping a lot of berry seeds. And so those berry seeds can then uh, turn into the next generation of um, thimble berries or blackberries or um, whatever berry it is that they're eating. Same with um, with fish. When bears are eating salmon during the salmon run, um, their excrement and scat is fertilizing those areas where they're um, defecating. And so then more plants can grow. Um, and also clearing the forest of dead things. Bears are um, really opportunistic om omnivores. They like to forage. They like to eat pretty much anything. Um, but they also eat a lot of dead things on the forest floor. So dead animals, um, they can clear those diseases. Uh, so they're not kind of lingering with carcasses everywhere. Um, and like I said, they're just they're just really great Um for the ecosystem that way. They just um, are super resilient. But yeah, with the, the availability of human food and garbage, none of those uh, sort of chains are actually happening with bears eating our trash, which isn't good for them or our food. Um, none of those plants, like I mentioned, are going to be regrowing. The soil's not going to be fertilized. And so, um, you know, it really does have kind of a rippling impact when they're not um, out doing bear things and being wild. <laughs> Well, Serena, thanks for coming on and helping us better understand the situation in Tahoe. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Serena Simons is Human Bear Management Specialist for California State Parks, and you can also hear Serena on the podcast Earth to Humans. Gloria, you posed a question in your book, Eight Bears, to some of the experts, and you asked, why is it so important that we learn to live with American black bears? How did they answer that? That was actually in Lake Tahoe that I had asked that question. Um, <laughs> and they, John Beckman is the person who said it, uh, a wildlife biologist. And he said, you know, if we can't learn to live with American black bears, which, as Serena said, is kind of the, the goofy uh, raccoon type bear, you know, how on earth will we learn to live with grizzly bears? And grizzly bears are starting to show up in places that they haven't been in hundreds of years in some cases. So they're kind of the the training wheels bear for us to live with, if you will. And talk about what grizzlies are like. I, I understand from your book, they haven't been in California since I think the 20s, even though they're on our flag. You know, we they live large in the California imagination. How are grizzlies different? <laughs> from the American black bear. I mean, they're much larger. That's what most people would think, I think, first of all. Um, the color actually doesn't matter so much. Uh, you know, black bears can be brown and brown bears can be white. And there's all these different, uh, you know, color variations that they have. I think the most distinctive feature, of course, is the hump of the grizzly bear. And they are a bit more... Um, I don't know if, I guess a bit more aggressive than the American black bear. And they also tend to, if they're going to attack someone, they would attack them perhaps in more of a defensive way, like a grizzly sow with cubs versus uh, American black bear attacks, which sometimes tend to be a bit more predatory. Um, well, we have a couple of comments from listeners. Robert writes, one night camping in Tuolumne Meadows in Yosemite, we heard some distant noisy fellow campers. I thought, wow, people don't observe quiet time after lights out anymore. The hollering and I, the hollering and I thought partying got louder and seemingly more urgent. Finally, we saw the source of all the commotion, a big black bear sauntering through the campground, and we joined the noisy chorus, encouraging it to move on. Another listener writes, we were recently camping in the Sierra. None of our campers had food in our, in or near their tent. In the middle of the night, a bear took a bite out of and pawed an occupied tent. 
The bear left after the person in the tent screamed and flashed a light at it. Again, these would be black bear encounters, and some of the grizzly encounters, especially from the past that you describe, were truly, truly terrifying. Though overall, what would you say about um, the viciousness of grizzlies, Gloria Dickey? Yeah, I think, um, you know, kind of, I guess, perhaps the watershed moment uh, in terms of bear management in national parks in the United States was an incident that happened in Glacier National Park back in the the late 1960s when two women on the same night uh, were killed by grizzly bears. Um, And that kind of, you know, initially it was thought of perhaps the women were menstruating and that's why the bears went after them. And there was all this kind of um, silly stuff that came out of it, basically saying that women should not be in bear country when they're menstruating. But when they actually did the full analysis, it turned out that, no, it was it was food attractants um, that had basically habituated and led these bears, these grizzlies to, to what happened. And so we saw a lot of the national parks after that moment, you know, decide to close the open dumps, which were still present in some parks, you know, in kind of the the mid 20th century. So certainly there's there can be more aggression and they're much bigger bear, um, you know, and so I think, you know, but it's it's still, I suppose, worth noting, it's not the world's deadliest bear that belongs to a species called the sloth bear in India in terms of the number of people who are attacked and killed every year. But certainly, you know, I think when people are hiking, you're a lot more concerned about encountering a grizzly bear than an American black bear, which, you know, hopefully will just kind of run away. Yeah. Um, Well, again, listeners, we're talking with Gloria Dickey, an environmental journalist and author of Eight Bears, Mythic Mythic Past and Imperiled Future, about our complex relationship with bears, the humans who love fear, want to protect them amid intensifying climate change, and uh, about how California black bears and brown bears are basically doing the best of the eight remaining bear species. You're sharing your encounters with bears at 866-733-6786. You're sharing if you feel an affection or an affinity with bears and where you think that comes from. You can email forum at kqed.org. Find us on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram, or Discord at KQED Forum. You can call us at 866-733-6786. Kayla Bass, is there any possibility of using bears' intelligence to our advantage? Can we set up alternative locations where they can forage? Any thoughts on Caleb's question? question, Gloria? So, uh, I mean, I guess we do see, you know, bears gathering around, uh, you know, waterfalls and Brooks Falls up in Alaska, and they're a little bit more more peaceful there, perhaps. Um, but I don't know that that's, not that that's a very good strategy. <laughs> <laughs> well, we are going to talk about the other six bear species after the break. Stay with us. You are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. 
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Look for the bare necessities, the simple bare necessities. Forget about your worries and your strife. I mean the bare necessities or Mother Nature's recipes that bring the bare necessities of life. We are talking about bears this hour with Gloria Dickey, who's written about the eight remaining bear species. Listeners might be familiar with Baloo from Jungle Book. Baloo, as I learned from Dickey's book, Eight Bears, is actually a sloth bear. And Gloria Dickey, we have talked about black bears, but I'd love to have you talk about some of the other species you profiled, including the sloth bear, which is very unlike Baloo in the sense that it's the world's deadliest bear. Exactly. Yeah, I think that there's a lot of people who have never even heard of the world's other bear species, um, especially, you know, the sun bear, the sloth bear, the moon bear, the uh, the spectacled bear, which lives in the Andes. And I think with this book, I kind of wanted to showcase, you know, some of those those other animals that are less familiar to people, you know, compared with the black bear and the brown bear, which are, are really in trouble. And how are they dealing in India with these deadly sloth bears? So we do see quite a few people, you know, attacked every year. The the, the government doesn't keep as close track of it as you would see in, in, in North America. But when I was traveling throughout India, you know, I went through a lot of villages where people routinely enter the forest to collect mushrooms or collecting mawa flowers, which they use as a kind of liqueur. Uh, and often the they meet sloth bears, which are quite uh, quite aggressive. They're used to living with tigers. And, you know, these people have horrific injuries, sometimes death. But I think what's quite different from what we see in places like Lake Tahoe, where those bears are removed from the population, uh, is typically that you know, the government doesn't have a strict, well, now we have to kill that bear. But we do often see villages who, of course, have been traumatized by these incidents, you know, create perhaps, you know, kind of revenge mobs. And we do see revenge killings of, of sloth bears in India at times, which scientists are concerned about. Well, let me... Um... Let me bring Francesco in San Rafael into the conversation. Francesco, thanks for waiting. What's your question? Uh, So long and short, I'm wondering about, is it realistic to expect the polar bear, um, which I think short of the grizzly and uh, panda are probably the most universally iconic And then I was also wondering, um, just talking about food sources, has anybody considered, I mean, they were talking about like uh, setting up alternative sources or helping to improve their natural food sources in their environment so they don't have a need as much to forage in human areas. Uh, Francesco, thanks for those questions. I mean, Gloria, you talked about two ways that we're endangering bears is is direct killings, uh, like for example, in, in the case of the sloth bear, but also with human-induced climate change. And, and Francesco's wondering about whether polar bears realistically have a chance. If I remember right, I think you're worried that they do have the bleakest 
future, no? Yeah, a couple of years ago, scientists actually did a study to kind of look at, you know, where might where might we persist polar bears, um, or might we expect polar bears to persist beyond the end of the century? And, you know, we're looking at a lot of the world's remaining 19 subpopulations of polar bears collapsing, you know, and that means disappearing by the end of the century. I think only those in the very high Arctic are expected to persist beyond, you know, 2100. That also kind of brings me to an interesting point that he was getting at too, which is that, you know, there's some scientists who say towns like Churchill, Manitoba, which is the polar bear tourism capital of the world, need to start having conversations about, you know, will we supplementally feed these bears? Will we put food out to avoid a bunch of polar bears starving in the, you know, the international eye in many ways? Um, it is one of the most, uh, it's at one of the lowest latitudes uh, in the world. So therefore, the ice is expected to disappear there pretty early on. Um, and of course, that's a very, that's a very <laughs> contentious proposal. Um, but it is a species where it's very hard to save the habitat without global action on climate change. And we haven't been doing much on that front. So I think that that's really tricky. Would you say it's the spectacle bear next in terms of concern about climate change impact? I think, yeah, the, the spectacled bear or the Andean bear, it depends on what uh, what what word you want to use. That's what Paddington there, was, right, based on? Pad, yes, Paddington is a, is a spectacled bear, although he doesn't really look like one. Spectacled <laughs> <No>. bears <laughs> I know are black and <laughs> they look like they're wearing spectacles, which is where the name comes from. Um, but they, too, they live in the cloud forests of South America, which are these really rare tropical forests that are basically moist, you know, moisture. They get their moisture from the clouds. And climate change, again, is shifting the point at which the clouds float through the forest on the mountain upslope. So they're losing ground to climate change. Perhaps we haven't seen the biggest impacts from that yet, like we have already with the polar bear. But that's something that scientists are very concerned about, too, uh, in that case. And let me go to caller Steve in Marin County. Hi, Steve. You're on. I think we're having a slight issue with your connection. Steve, just hang on and we'll see if we can get that straightened out. Uh, another listener writes, bears are a common sight around our North Tahoe house. Our house is along their route through our neighborhood, which appears to include our deck. There are at least two bears that frequent our house. One is a large older one, the other a juvenile. They keep us on our toes and fortunately haven't done any significant damage yet. Paul writes, my dad was leading a school camping trip to Yosemite in the mid-1960s when one night a bear decided to take a shortcut through the campground, stepping right over one of the parent aides and around the kids. My dad had made some, quote, bear bombs, some dust and rocks wrapped in aluminum foil to hopefully scare them away, but I can't remember if he actually used them. I've you know, never it, heard of bear bombs. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if that's a thing. <laughs> But, you know, as we're we're hearing about some of these stories out of Yosemite, um, you talked about how Yosemite's um, could be a model for coexisting with bears, that there are some global lessons that could be applied there. Can you talk about Yosemite's transition? Because as I understand it, they went from being a national embarrassment in its bear relations, mm -hmm. maybe around that time that that last listener was talking about, to one that people are turning to for ideas. 
Yeah, Yosemite has such uh, an interesting ursine history, and I was I was really happy to. I mean, I was really intrigued to learn about it. Um, so essentially, in the early 20th century, you know, shortly after Yosemite opened, people were coming from the cities into the park. Uh, the park kind of realized that people really wanted to see bears, and they had open dumps. And shortly thereafter, you started to see the park actually having bear shows in the evening and they would charge people to come in and watch the bears uh, eating at the at the dump sites and basically food conditioning all of these bears for people's entertainment. I think there was one report that more than 30 people were attacked at a, some of these bear viewing shows <laughs> in one year because, you know, they were getting up close and personal with the, with the black bears. And so when I mentioned uh, that attack on the two women in Glacier National Park, it was kind of around that time that Yosemite closed their dumps. But of course, that pushed the bears into the campgrounds. And so you had all of these marauding black bears tearing through campgrounds. And then they started going into the cars as well, looking for more food. And so in 1998, uh, the National Park Service created the Yosemite Bear Team to basically try and figure out, you know, how do we deal with thousands of these bear condi- or these garbage-conditioned bears. And, um, you know, they replaced all the, the garbage bins. They created an impound lot for any vehicle left with food in it. Uh, they have, you know, storage lockers in the campgrounds. And they really, you know, they also had to wait, you know, as Rachel Mazur, who wrote this lovely book called Speaking of Bears and works for the Park Service, you know, she said we had, we had to wait for a generation of bears that were, that knew nothing but human food, to die out, many oh, wow. were killed to basically make room for for bears that uh, that could live wild lives again. So, what does a successful bear policy require? You talked about it being one of constant innovation, but why? Because bears are smart. <laughs> <laughs> I think that that was um, it. Was you know when I was when I was visiting Yosemite in in twenty nineteen to do some of the reporting on this, they were in the process of once again, replacing and retrofitting all of the bear lockers in the campgrounds because the bears had figured out how to open them and they taught other bears. Uh, And Serena kind of got at that too, that bears are very good teachers and they're very happy to share their knowledge with, you know, their children and show them how to do what they just figured out. I remember the leader of the bear team, she said that they'd put in some new bear lockers and they came back the next day and there were all these little dusty paw prints all over the latch of the bears trying to, to figure it out and puzzle it out. Uh, and I think that's where people like love bears too, because they're so curious, just like us. And I think that, you know, we can see part of ourselves in that in that determination of the bear. Well, Steve writes on Discord, on a trip with my wife to Glacier a number of years ago, I was surprised after all my experience at Yosemite that the rule in Glacier was to keep food in your car. Apparently the bears there haven't yet learned or taught their cubs that cars contained food. Interesting because, you know, the big rule in Tahoe is don't leave it in your car. But Mm. um, do you think it's because this generation of bears are wilder and don't know that food is in their car that this rule may have changed? It's, it's possible. I mean, I feel like it's a matter of time with a lot of these things. I mean, do you want to risk your your door getting torn off? I don't know. Um, but certainly, you know, I, I think nowadays, too, it's true. Like, if, if one bear hasn't learned it, I mean, they do have a very strong sense of smell as well. So I suppose it depends on what kind of food is in there. Um, but I still think it's probably safer to to put it in a bear locker if that's available to you. But to be fair, I used to go camping and also leave food in my car. So yeah, I mean that that might be that might be the case. Well, let me go to caller Steve in Marin County. Steve, thanks for calling back. Go ahead. Oh yeah. 
You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you for letting me call back. Uh, hi, I wanted to ask the guest what you think of the use of bear spray. Uh, I ride mountain bikes a lot in the wild areas, Marin and Sonoma County, and they're not there yet. But uh, as you're mentioning, they're be appearing more and more in areas where they haven't been. So I don't, you know, I'm thinking of the humane, but first I'm thinking of first priority, my safety. So I'm wondering what you think of uh, what's just called bear spray, and I'm not even sure if that <laughs> contains cayenne pepper or what. Well, as a as a mountain biker, you're a prime target. It's <laughs> so one thing that a lot of bear managers will say is doing anything that might surprise, you know, a bear by coming in at a top speed and it can't hear you. That's uh, it's a bit of a recipe for disaster at times. Um, but I think, I mean, the bear spray has been found to be incredibly useful. You know, I think, you know, so the bear bombs that you mentioned earlier and bear bells, things like that are less effective. Guns are less effective because it's difficult to discharge and get a good shot at a bear that's coming at you. So bear spray is kind of, you know, far and above the most recommended, uh, you know, strategy but you should know you should one be able to access it it should be you know kind of clipped onto your shoulder and you should also know how to shoot it uh, I have heard some stories of people who believe that bear spray works like mosquito repellent and they end up in the hospital because they spray themselves with the bear spray <laughs> Um, but I, I, I do know that, you know, there's been some studies that have shown that no one's ever been fatally killed by a bear after discharging bear spray. Um, I guess maybe it's a bit hard to tell, but I think that that should add uh, a bit of comfort, perhaps, to, to take that with you. We're hearing your bear questions and about your bear encounters with Gloria Dickey, environmental journalist and author of Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. And you are listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Let me go next to Lorna in Rohnert Park. Hi, Lorna. Join us. You're on. Hey, I grew up in northern Minnesota, and uh, when I was a kid, I was always at the lake, and one day I was riding my horse back to this backcountry area, and all of a sudden, my horse, we crossed over this bridge, and my horse reared, and he took off at a full gallop, and I got down really low on him, and he, and I'm thinking, oh my God, the bear, because there had been this black bear that had been harassing hikers, and I didn't hear him at first, and we were on, we were trapped in this mile dirt road straight away, and all of a sudden, through the forest, crash, 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 he is running flat out straight at us, this black bear, okay, and I'm like, I'm like, we, sugar, my horse and I, we are going to die. And um, so the bear is like, vroom, and the, he did the weirdest thing. When the forest ended, there was like 75 feet maybe between that and the dirt road. He, he was running parallel with us, but he was running so fast that he couldn't roar. So every, And he was clearing through all this brush. Like, you have no freaking idea, okay? And every time his front paws hit the ground, he's like, rah, 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 rah. And, um, and I'm like, ah! And so there's a T coming up in the road, and I'm like, if we go to the right, he's going to kill us. It's a no-man's land because it's over this railroad embankment. And if we go to left, we're going to intersect with him. So our only chance, sugar is to just take the trail through the birch forest because eventually it meets the main road. And I'm like, take the trail, take the trail. And this bear is like, you know, just going to eat us and kill us. And I'm like, please, sugar, take the trail. And so, he, boom, he took the trail. The bear stopped when he got to the road. Wow. And I was 11 years old. And 11? And I ran my horse flat out. Yeah. Wow. I grew up riding. We had horses 
and, you know, I rode and raced and trail rode and barrel raced and all this stuff. But my horse, oh, my God, he was covered in foam and sweat. And I got off oh. and I walked him home. And I never told my mom until I was, like, 19 years old what happened. But, <laughs> yeah, it was a serious it. thing. Oh, wow. Well, I love the story and the sound effects, Lorna, and I'm so glad you're okay. Um, well, Ron writes, my understanding is that black bears are omnivores. If they eat meat at all, they are mostly eating and scavenging carcasses. We should stop calling them predators, then people might be less disturbed and scared. What do you think, Gloria? How I, do you think we need to, yeah, to understand I've and approach? I've thought a lot about that question before, because yeah. I always kind of feel a little bit weird referring to bears as predators sometimes, too, because to me, it's a bit different than like a tiger or a crocodile or a shark or something. Um, I guess the short answer is it depends a lot on the species of bear yes. that we're talking about. And, you know, even males versus females, their diet may differ. Um, for example, you know, there's some, I think it's, uh, you know, male you know, male grizzly bears in Yellowstone will eat more meat than the females. But in general, especially black bears, eat a lot of berries. Uh, and I think people tend to overestimate um, how much meat they eat. Polar bears eat pretty much exclusively seals. They can't subsist on, you know, berries and things like that. Um, but then if we go to the other worlds, uh, the other bear species around the world, you know, the sun bear eats uh, things like honey. The sloth bear actually eats insects, not people. <laughs> um, so there's a really varied diet. And I think, you know, maybe they're a little bit scavenging sometimes. Um, but it, it depends. You know, polar bears, I would say yes, predator, um, strict carnivores. Uh, but the American black bear is kind of, I mean, they like garbage too, right? They like going to Safeway. So <laughs> it's, uh, it's a bit tricky to call them that. Well, Pete tweets, God bless the Yosemite bears. You have talked about the bear champions, a couple of them in your book. Do you just want to share what it means to be a bear champion and what some of them are doing in our last minute or so? Yeah. You know, for my book, I, I basically followed scientists and conservationists following bears. So, you know, there was Russ Van Horn, who actually lives in California, um, and he's been working with spectacled bear for years and trying to understand how it uses its habitat. And especially for a lot of these rare bears, there's not that many people who study them compared with, you know, black bears and, and brown bears. Um, Chris Servine was the former U.S. grizzly bear recovery coordinator who basically oversaw the persistence of grizzly bears in the lower um, you've got Andrew DeRoche up in Alberta, Canada, who looks at polar bears. Um, so there, there's people all over the world who are fighting to, you know, make sure that bears continue on this journey with us. Yeah, because as you say, we actually, as humans, will determine their future. Well, Gloria, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. And thanks to everyone for sharing their bear stories. Gloria's book is Eight Bears, Mythic Past and Imperiled Future. Thanks, Caroline Smith, for producing today's segment. And thank you, listeners, for sharing your stories and questions. You've been listening to Forum. I'm Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. 
Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. All over the country, we need to improve reading in Wisconsin. Schools are changing the way they teach reading. I'm calling for a renewed focus on literacy. We have gotten this wrong in New York and all across the nation. And it's happening because of a podcast. I think your podcast has changed my life. And I'm going to share this podcast with everyone I meet. Sold a Story investigates how teaching kids to read went wrong. New episodes of Sold a Story are available now.